So the world has been living with COVID-19 for a year now. That's the bad news. The good news, as we all know, is that a vaccine, several vaccines actually, have begun to come out. The UK started vaccinating its population in early December. The US and Canada, shortly after that. What about everyone else? The world's poorer countries, when will they be getting vaccinated? The reality is we don't, we don't really know. We have some hope that vaccines will be rolled out starting next year, but there are massive, massive gaps when it comes to access for basically everyone who is not extremely wealthy or lives in an extremely wealthy country. We are on the verge of what is essentially a global vaccine apartheid. Wow. I'm sure that you don't use that term lightly. Under the status quo, some people may get access and others will be left behind, potentially for years. Today, we're talking about access to a COVID vaccine. Those who will have it, those who will not, and how that might change the world. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. And this is Zane. My name is Zane Rizvi. I'm a law and policy researcher at a consumer advocacy organization called Public Citizen. And I specifically work on the Access to Medicines team. He's been working in and around this field for years, for most of his adult life. A passion, a calling, a compulsion, you could call it. (laughs) I wrote about Access to Medicines in my law school uh, application essay. Oh, wow. Okay. Which makes you the absolute perfect person to talk to for our episode today. Are there enough vaccines for all countries? Will there be enough? We will see serious shortages, but part of these shortages actually reflect a policy choice. So much of the world right now is focused on the idea of how do we split the vaccine pie? But there are fewer conversations about how do we bake a bigger pie? And that's what Zane spent a lot of time thinking about recently a way to make enough vaccines to vaccinate the whole world, not just the global elite. As he puts it, a way to make a bigger vaccine pie. How do we increase supply as quickly as possible to rapidly produce as much vaccine as possible? Instead, what we've largely gotten are these siloed efforts. Many rich countries have gobbled up the existing supply and not done enough to expand supply for the rest of the world. But before we figure out how he wants to expand the pie, we wanted to hear from some of the countries we're not hearing about outside the U.S. and Europe. How long is it taking to get those countries vaccines? And how many vaccines are they getting? So we got in touch with some people we know in a few countries around the world. Our Al Jazeera correspondents. My name is Manuel Rapalo. I'm in Mexico City, and I've been reporting on Mexico's national vaccination program. I'm Elizabeth Puranam in Delhi, India, and I've been following the efforts to develop an indigenous vaccine and procure enough doses from overseas to vaccinate the world's second largest population. My name is Jessica Washington in Jakarta in Indonesia. I'm Malcolm Webb in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. I'm Katrina Yu in Beijing, China. And I'm Charles Stratford reporting from the Iraqi capital, Baghdad. All of these correspondents have been following the vaccine progress. 
Unfortunately, there hasn't been progress in many of the places they're covering. Myself and the Al Jazeera team have been following the beginnings of the rollout and administration of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, but a very long way away from here. Of course, Charles is referring to the rollouts in the U.S. and the U.K., not where he is in Baghdad. So what are the prospects of Iraq getting the vaccine quickly and enough of it um, in the near future? Well, firstly, officially, a spokesperson for the Ministry of Health who we spoke to has told us that negotiations with companies that have been developing the vaccines are ongoing. So no vaccine promises yet from Iraqi officials, but the local media has been a bit more hopeful, Charles says. Media reported, quoting the government in the last couple of days, that the first batch of doses would be around 600,000, which would serve around 300,000 people because certainly the Pfizer vaccine involves two vaccinations. Now, bear in mind that the population of this country is around 40 million. So that would vaccinate less than 1% of the population in Iraq. And what about Kenya? Malcolm, our correspondent there, says the government wasn't saying much about vaccines until recently. It was just last week when Kenya's acting director of health said the government had ordered 24 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine. Kenya's population is just over 50 million. So that has the potential to vaccinate a quarter of Kenya's population better than Iraq, but Malcolm says trusting the government on COVID-related programs is tough these days. There have been some scandals. Investigators said millions of dollars of health funds were misused. And even if Kenya does get the vaccines they're promising, will they get them to the people who need them? A lot of the best medical care in Kenya is private and only available to the few who can afford it. It's certainly possible that wealthy people may have access to vaccines privately well before the rest of the population gets them. You can see politics playing out in so many of these vaccine policies. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has made his message about access. Mexico's president, along with federal health officials in the country, have made it a point to continue to sort of reiterate and reassure the population here in the country that the vaccine is going to be available to everyone for free, regardless of whether or not they have regular access to health care. But with a population of 126 million, Mexico's looking at less than 0.1% of its population being vaccinated initially. The Mexican government announced the strategy for the national vaccination program. And basically, it consists of 125,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine that will be first administered to healthcare workers and to persons over 60 years of age and any other people who might fall under a high risk category. The plan is to continue this for as long as it takes. And then there are the truly vulnerable. People living in places destroyed by war and people who've been displaced. If this vaccine truly is a humanitarian effort on a massive scale, how will it get to them? The civil war in Syria has left millions far from their homes. We spoke to a doctor who's trying to help with the Herculean effort to get vaccines to the people there. Hello, my name is Zahir Sahlul. I am a pulmonary and critical care specialist practicing in Christ Advocate Medical Center and St. Anthony's Hospitals in Chicago. 
Dr. Sahlul works with COVID patients at his home hospitals in the U.S. state of Illinois. But he's also the president of an organization called MedGlobal. We build resilience in low-resources countries and countries that are hit by disasters like Syria, Yemen, Gaza Strip, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sudan, Colombia, Ecuador, and other countries. With the COVID vaccine now, there is a huge fear in the developing countries, especially the countries that are going through disasters, that they will be at the end of the list of the countries that will receive the vaccine. And Syria is not different. Syria is complicated because it's divided to at least three different areas. Most of the country is still controlled by Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, and there have been chronic problems bringing in aid. The Syrian regime has a track record of distributing medications and United Nations aid and channeling them to their quote-unquote loyalists and depriving populations who are considered hostile to the regime from these humanitarian assistance. And then, in areas that aren't under the control of the Syrian government, there are other problems. The northwest, uh, or Idlib, which has about 4.2 million people, half of them have been displaced from other areas in Syria. About 1.5 million uh, of them live in camps. There's a huge fear that they will be also ignored and they will be the last to receive the vaccine. Uh, Most likely, they will receive the vaccine under the auspices of UN OCHA that has a coordination unit in Ghazi Aintab in Turkey. And Turkey's access to the vaccines affects Idlib's access to the vaccines. The good news, Dr. Sahlul says, is that Turkey should be getting some of these first vaccines. Turkey would be one of the first countries that will be receiving the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. It may also decide to distribute the vaccine in northwest Syria because of the closeness of that area to Turkey and to provide, quote-unquote, health security to its population. To protect its population, probably it's better to vaccinate the these 4.2 million people who are very close to Turkey. So that's a possibility. No one knows what would be the, the plan that will be implemented. The whole thing is like a giant tangled distribution web. But in almost every case, the most vulnerable seem to come out last. And making sure that doesn't happen is important. Not just for those populations, but in order to take COVID-19 from our present and put it in our past. Just remind us how important it is for the whole world to start vaccinating for global herd immunity. Without herd immunity, the virus will continue to spread. thousand flights will be necessary to transport the 10 billion doses needed to create global herd immunity. I would say that we are very far away from global herd immunity. and We're not in a position or even contemplating mass vaccination to reach herd immunity. Remember Zain Rizvi with Public Citizen from the beginning? He said his calling is access to medicine. I asked him to explain how these relationships between countries and the vaccine companies become part of this global plan. And if there's any way to get more access to these vaccines. So how does it all work? Let's start with the UK and the US, Canada, places that we know have the money. How are these countries getting the vaccine to vaccinate their populations? So many of these countries have entered into advanced purchase agreements with these vaccine manufacturers. Even before they knew the vaccines were safe and effective, they had secured a portion of their supply. 
The rich countries have effectively bought their way to the front of the line. Some of the middle-income countries, like the Brazils and the Mexicos of the world, are now trying to scramble and, you know, purchase what's left. But the vast majority of the world is effectively uncovered. The poor are effectively left behind. The world's largest vaccine manufacturer is Serum Institute in India. They basically pump out billions and billions of doses for, for the rest of the world. Largest vaccine manufacturer said a few months ago, he expects that the rest of the world will be vaccinated by 2024 at the earliest. That is terrifying. When you hear something like that, what goes through your mind as to 2024, so long, and what's standing in the way? Why? It's sort of a depressing incoherence between what many public leaders are actually saying and what they're actually doing. You see the French president talking about how the vaccine is a global public good. What does that really mean when the vast majority of the world is going to be left out potentially from vaccine access? So there is a partnership created to help ensure that something like that doesn't happen, that vast parts of the world are not left out of this, and that is COVAX. Can you explain to me what COVAX is and how it's helping developing countries getting their populations vaccinated? COVAX is a global initiative. It's co-led by a, a range of global institutions, including the, the World Health Organization, to get vaccines quickly to developing countries all over the world. Where does the money come from? It's primarily funded right now by governments all around the world. The idea of COVAX is to supply a coronavirus vaccine equitably, to provide 2 billion doses to 1 billion people by the end of 2021. But there are open questions about whether it can meet all its funding targets and needs over the next few months and years. Some leaders in the world have started expressing concerns because they understand that it's not achieving all that it set out to at this point. One of those leaders is United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres at the G20 summit of global leaders at the end of November, pleading for billions just to reach COVAX's current needs. 28 billion more are needed, including 4.2 billion before the end of the year. This funding is critical for mass manufacturing, procurement, and delivery of new COVID-19 vaccines and tools around the world. The end of the year is days away, and the Reuters news agency just got a hold of internal COVAX documents, saying COVAX itself acknowledges a, quote, very high risk of failure. And so COVAX is in a difficult position because time, frankly, is running out. COVAX is important, but in some ways it is also insufficient. Zane has what he thinks is a better way to make a bigger pie. We need to ask the countries that are funding these companies to actually share the recipe, to share the technology, so we can actually have a more sustainable way of producing and developing vaccines and manufacturing vaccines at scale. We do need a system to respond to these nightmares. So what would that system look like? Manufacturers all over the world produce vaccines. There is more vaccine capacity out there than is currently being deployed for COVID-19 vaccines. And so if the recipe was shared, these manufacturers, some of whom have not been in touch with these large pharmaceutical corporations, could decide to switch over or to produce the vaccines. And even governments all over the world could make additional investments to make this kind of vaccine. 
And so what you really see is kind of dominoes fall because you unlock whatever is out there and you could hopefully get closer to meeting the needs of the moment. And the need of this moment is more vaccines. Yes, there would be more vaccines. We could actually get to a better solution faster. One example of this, which is very real, is Moderna and Pfizer. Their vaccines have very different refrigeration requirements. The Pfizer vaccine, you know, as you know, it has to be kept at an extremely low temperature, whereas the Moderna vaccine can be stable at a higher temperature. So why aren't Moderna and Pfizer talking to each other? Why aren't they sharing their knowledge? Why aren't they learning from each other? We're completely speaking the same language because I have been wondering, as these reports have come out about Pfizer's preliminary success, why Moderna hasn't caught up if this is all for the global good. So does that mean that's really all about capitalism and needing to put out a product that is uniquely yours? Or am I being too cynical? Are there conversations happening behind the scenes that are saying, we figured out a way, this is what we needed, we're going to share that information with you? We have not seen anything publicly to suggest that Pfizer and Moderna are collaborating in any way to improve Pfizer's vaccine to make it more thermostable. And what's particularly disappointing here is, you know, taxpayers have put in billions and billions of dollars to help fund these vaccines. They have provided vaccine manufacturing facilities, federal scientists and federal science. They've taken the public money without actually taking in any commitment to the public interest. So are there examples of types of vaccine licenses, information swaps that have been successful? A lot of the access to medicines work draws from the history of HIV AIDS, where there were these incredibly effective treatments that were largely priced out of reach for millions of people. In places like Sub-Saharan Africa, in particular in South Africa, there were massive gaps in access. But, you know, you don't even have to go that far and look into the past. AstraZeneca has been pushed by Oxford in some ways to share its technology more, to share its recipe. And as a result, the AstraZeneca vaccine is actually produced in many different countries by many different manufacturers around the world. So you're starting to see, for example, that the AstraZeneca vaccine is being manufactured in in Russia, it's being manufactured in Mexico, it's being manufactured in Argentina. Why is it just AstraZeneca? And so you could see something very similar happening, except on a much bigger scale, with a much bigger ambition. Many believe that the AstraZeneca vaccine, if it proves safe and effective, will be the vaccine that is rapidly deployed to the developing world. Indonesia has pre-ordered 100 million doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Those are expected to start arriving early next year. That's Jessica Washington, our correspondent in Jakarta again. Indonesia, which has the fourth largest population in the world and more than 6,000 islands to distribute vaccines to, will also be manufacturing some of the Chinese vaccines. Indonesia has also struck a deal with Sinovac, a Chinese pharmaceuticals manufacturer, purchasing not only complete doses, but also the raw materials so that Indonesia can manufacture around 45 million doses of the vaccines here in Indonesia. And I think that's the one that has gotten more attention here because Indonesia has also been involved in the late stage trials of that vaccine. And our correspondent in Beijing, Katrina Yu, says China has so few cases at this point that testing the vaccine is difficult to do there. But there is also a strategy behind China's approach to getting the vaccine out into the world. 
in China, vaccines are so important because the Chinese government basically sees them as a way to redeem itself on the world stage after being the source or the origin of the coronavirus pandemic. It's very clear this year that China's soft power, its image, has taken a complete nosedive since the outbreak, and Beijing is desperate to recover it. So some vaccine producers have released their recipe. It's possible, but Zane says there's often politics involved. He wants to see this happening across the board with every vaccine. What we really need to defeat here is the virus. So much of the pandemic has taken on these weird kind of proxy political battles, but we need to be focused on the idea that getting the world out of this pandemic has to be a global priority. And it's not just Zane asking for the vaccine recipes to be liberated. Earlier in December, the People's Vaccine Alliance, made up of organizations like Oxfam, Amnesty International, and some other aid groups, along with some of the countries affected, pushed for this, saying access to the vaccine at this point is bleak. A group of developing countries will urge the World Trade Organization to make COVID-19 vaccines free from patent protections. The People's Vaccine Alliance says nine out of 10 people in 67 poorer countries will not get the coronavirus vaccine next year. India is one of those countries. Here's Elizabeth Puranam from Delhi again. India and South Africa have asked the World Trade Organization to temporarily waive the intellectual property and patent rights on COVID vaccines and other tools like medical devices and kits, which are required to fight the pandemic by poorer countries. This will allow the vaccines and the equipment to be manufactured at lower costs. So I asked Zane about the political will required to make this happen on a global stage. How does the WTO play into this? What's happening there with talks surrounding vaccines? The World Trade Organization has an international agreement, which member states all over the world have signed up for, which sets out intellectual property rules. And India and South Africa are proposing that these rules and how they're being applied be waived to allow more manufacturers to produce So far, some rich country governments have stood in the way and have said very negative things about the proposal. But discussions are ongoing. Is there a risk that we could be limiting innovation? We know that Russia, China, Iran, Australia, they're all attempting vaccines, apart from the big ones that we're hearing about. What if those work better? What if they don't require the same refrigeration that the Pfizer vaccine does? Is there an encouragement for innovation here in this scenario that we're painting? It's a good point. We have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, newer technologies might be better suited. You know, like some of the new protein vaccines are expected to be more stable. They might be able to be rapidly produced. But that being said... If six months from now, we find out that there are a handful of vaccines that work and there are a handful that don't, I don't think we should keep waiting on the rest of the world to figure out how to reinvent the vaccine recipe when we actually have one. It'll create a, a real ethical disaster. We know a new administration in the United States comes to office starting on January 20th. Your aim is to push a President Biden into changing this access 
are you going about that? Much of this is actually just about setting out a grand, ambitious vision to share the vaccine recipe and to build the manufacturing capacity to really expand supply in a meaningful way. President-elect Biden can just convene the manufacturers, can convene countries, can convene corporations, and really set out what needs to be done and ask straight up to these companies, what are you willing to do to end this once-in-a-century crisis? And I think the corporations would find it difficult to resist the humanitarian imperative. And if the corporations are unwilling to share, then President Alec Biden actually has some legal authority as well. The U.S. government has significant rights in the contracts it has awarded these corporations. The U.S. government has existing laws on the books. Biden could deploy or publicly consider deploying. There was a, a government program set up actually in the Bush era, 2006, where the U.S. government basically helped build manufacturing capacity for pandemic flu vaccines in developing countries. Why is it taking us so long right now to do the same in the middle of the worst crisis since World War II? The Secretary General of the United Nations has said this is the world's worst crisis since World War II. What we're missing is not some technical scientific solution. What we're missing actually is just political will. So when it becomes available, are you going to be one of the first people online? I hope not. I think it will initially go through kind of the national criteria of who is a high-risk population and who should be getting a vaccine. Zane wants a vaccine. He believes in it. But he has a different concern. It feels unethical in some way for a healthy young man to get a vaccine over an older person in Malawi who is a healthcare worker. But practically speaking, if one American decides not to take the vaccine, it's not like that vaccine will then go to someone in a developing country who really needs it, right? Yeah, there, there, no, no plans have been announced on how the U.S. will engage with the rest of the world. U.S. is an outlier in many respects in terms of not even paying the nominal lip service to global access. What happens if this doesn't get done? It is been challenging to understand and to work on these issues because you realize the magnitude of need constantly. You see countries in many ways working towards the opposite. What will the world look like if there is a vaccine apartheid? Even assuming the success of all the vaccine candidates that are out there, there are going to be massive, massive, massive shortages. The UN has said that COVID-19 is reversing decades of progress on education, health, the sustainable development goals. If billions of people in the rest of the world are not able to get access until 2023 or 2024, it will deepen and entrench global inequality in a way that we have not seen in recent years. It will make what we thought was absolutely terrible before into something that is unconscionable. What we're about to see in the next year or coming years, it's not preordained in any way. It's not written into history. It all is a reflection of policy choices that our leaders and leaders around the world are making now. And if they make a different set of choices, we can save millions of lives. We can really pull the world back from the brink of this disaster. Can we 
turn this ship around. Zane, thank you so much for giving me your time and for letting us into see exactly how you're going about doing that. I hope you're successful for the sake of us all. (laughs) So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with help from Oni Wohacha, Dina Kispe, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Nay Alvarez, Priyanka Tilde, and me, Malika Bilal. And I want to thank everyone who lent us their reporting and their voice to this episode. Our correspondents Jessica Washington, Elizabeth Peranam, Malcolm Webb, Charles Stratford, Manuel Rapalo, Katrina Yu, and Zaina Khodar. And to Dr. Zahir Sahlul in Chicago. Thank you. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.